Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi there and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. Do you ever sit and remember a time when the news was slow, when it felt like there wasn't a lot going on? Recently it feels like we've been living through a succession of historical moments, moments that will be taught about in history lessons for generations to come. The Prime Minister who has broken the law but remains in office, the longest reigning British monarch, the war in Ukraine, the worst cost of living crisis since the 1950s, according to The Independent. Well, you might notice this week that we sound a little bit different. That's because we are all actually in the same room. Myself, Danny Webster, Alicia Edmund and Peter Linus. Peter, you've made all the journey... Peter, you've made the journey all the way from Northern Ireland. Can you tell us why you ventured, why you ventured astray? Just to see you guys, to be here to record this podcast and to do some. We had our theological advisory group today. That was fantastic. We were talking about racial justice. We were talking about sexuality. We were talking about gender. We were talking about freedom of religion, belief. We were talking about everything. So yeah, just a variety of meetings in London, and then we can record live and in person. Yeah, I mean. I'm giddy with excitement right now. <laughs> giddy, terrified. We must be saying Danny's a new dad, surely, since last time. Yes, yes. I mean, um, did our listeners even know you were expecting? I don't know. But but Danny wasn't actually <laughs> expecting. <laughs> Technically, uh, we could get onto that if we want to. No. Yes, I'm the dad of an 11 year old, 11 year old, <laughs> remarkable, an 11 day old uh, boy, uh, Ruben, uh, who was born yeah, 11 days ago. He's not sleeping too well, but that's very normal. Yeah. Well done, Healy, and well done, Danny. Woo-woo. Good stuff. <laughs> so we can expect Danny to be even more coherent than normal on a sleep-deprived new dad state. Absolutely. Great. Let's start by talking about the biggest event to happen recently, the Platinum Jubilee. Peter, did you attend any street parties over the weekend? Uh, no. It's a little more contested in my culture. Half the country celebrates Platinum Jubilee and half the country isn't as keen in Northern Ireland. We did kind of market, we did, the kids were dressed up a little bit, we didn't have any big street parties, to be fair. Anybody else? Big street parties? No, I wasn't at any street parties, I was somewhat preoccupied. (laughs) (laughs) With your 11 year old. (laughs) (laughs) With a very small baby that's actually not at all small. But I, I, I found the Platinum Jubilee a bit interesting this year. I remember, I, I think it was the Golden Jubilee and then the Diamond Jubilee that felt like bigger things in the run-up to them. Whereas this felt a bit muted. Like we had the extra bank holiday, there were all these things planned, and then it happened. We, and there were all these big events. And it suddenly occurred to me that other people had travelled into central London to go to the mall and see the parades and see this. And I was like, oh, that kind of partly passed me by. And I wondered if, yeah, I just... The sense of celebration didn't seem quite there in the run-up to it. In the actual moment, there was a lot of that going on, but I think it's just part of that interesting and ongoing dynamic of how we feel about the monarchy. Interesting, because I wonder if it's something to do with the fact that the Queen's been that little bit less visible recently. She's been less mobile, less around. I, I felt a sense of stress that I haven't bought a Jubilee mug <laughs> and then I feel that that's ridiculous because I'm not I'm not gonna care, uh, but I in fifty years time or whatever. But I just feel like it's this huge moment, and have I kind of not made the most of it because I haven't got any memorabilia? I think we have a random 
plates from the Queen's Silver Jubilee that my dad had that bought. It's probably worth millions now. Well, maybe. (laughs) Any street parties this year? Any celebration of the Jubilee? I did come into London eventually, so I originally was planning to get up super early, get prime spot on the Mall and take all the photos. Really? Yes. Then the alarm went off and I decided I deserved a lion. So (laughs) I didn't get up so early, but I did venture into London early afternoon. It was... It was nice. It felt like a moment. So I didn't go to any street parties. Did a spot of shopping in Covent Garden, which I enjoyed. And I enjoyed the extra two days bank holiday. But I didn't celebrate in that sense. Yeah. I went over... We went over to some friends to watch the Jubilee concert with fish and chips, pims. Couldn't have been much more British than that, really. (laughs) So moving on from the Jubilee itself. Alyssa, how about your church? How did your church perceive the Jubilee? What did they do about it? So originally we planned to host a kind of outreach mission focus, use the opportunity of the Queen and her faith being central to who she is to use that as a moment to draw different communities together. But because we rent a place, a property that's not our own, we didn't have that option. But we do know of kind of church members that did host street parties. And one testimony that was a huge encouragement was she was part of the planning committee, she was open about her faith with her neighbours, praying before meetings and on the day, of course, everyone was worried about the weather, she said to mm-hmm. us, please pray, please pray, so much planning has gone into this and it turned out that 300, so actually more than her street turned up, so people invited their own families to the street party, came along, she had an opportunity to share faith. Uh, talk about, you know, who God is, how much, you know, the monarch, uh, the queen kind of Christianity uh, is central to who she is and use it as a moment to speak of Jesus. And she also shared uh, a testimony with a specific young guy that attended the street party and he's coming along to church. So definitely great stories of how people use the moments to witness for Jesus in that. So encouraged by that. That's definitely something that we've touched on a few times in the podcast, I think, that as Christians we should be attentive to kind of the celebrations as well as the moments of mourning that are taking place in society, news, culture, because those are moments where we can, they're just more obvious moments where we can talk about Jesus. At my church and at quite a lot of friends' churches that I've spoken to, the classic was using the kids' slot to say, yes, we've had this wonderful queen for 70 years, but let's remember the king who reigns forever and talking about Jesus. As I mentioned every week, you can get in touch. You can email us at crosssection at eauk.org. You can follow us at eaukNews on Twitter and Evangelical Alliance on Instagram. This week on Twitter, we always put out a question. This week we put out, so another big point in the news, Boris Johnson survived a no-confidence vote we asked who is a leader other than jesus who you have confidence in do you want to hear some of the answers that we got go we got jürgen klopp yeah what a man come on liverpool what a man nelson mandela okay that's a good one mo molan is that my name mo molan yeah yeah yeah. she led the peace talks in northern ireland oh she's never led she was a very good leader yeah yeah, so it's She broke the ice, she had cancer at the time, she had a wig, uh, and she that yeah, it was part of her thing was to take her wig off and break the ice with the, all these different 
uh, interesting characters in the Northern Ireland peace negotiations. Wow, that's amazing. So, contrasting uh, the Jubilee celebrating, I think most people would agree that she's a good queen. Yeah, so I take it the Jubilee is like, as in the biblical Jubilee, that's the 50 years, it comes from the UBL, the, the Jewish 50 year celebration. Well, so, no, because she had a silver Jubilee, yes, 25, right. and then a golden one at 50. Is and that, then platinums for 70, isn't it? Isn't Jubilee is basically being used as the Queen's equivalent of an anniversary. Because like, you have a silver anniversary, you don't have yeah. a silver Jubilee. So I think Jubilee just means... But you have to be drawn, so it has to be drawn then from the biblical idea of Jubilee. But wouldn't that mean that... She I guess we'd get days off. we get days off work. Yeah, but if she cancelled our debts, that would be a good thing. Well, it just struck me because it, it, like that is... I was just looking up to be sure the the. Yubel is the uh, Hebrew word for the Jubilee, and they, they, they uh, blew the shofar, the ram's horn, to celebrate it, but Yubel is the word, so our word Jubilee is a direct transliteration from that, so I'm not curious as to whether that's why she pulled that. Was it was the silver Jubilee not for 60? No, silver was 25. 25 years Gold old. was 50, diamond was 60. There you Wait, go. But I still think Jubilee um, is drawing from biblical roots. Well, maybe you should use the platform that we have as the Evangelical Alliance and go and suggest to Boris Johnson that he cancels everyone's debt. I think <laughs> to that solve be... the cost of the prices. <laughs> yeah, I think that would um, be Well, he's suggesting that people can access bigger mortgages uh, and use housing benefits as part of the payments in his latest attempt to move on uh, from the no confidence vote. But actually, just back to the Queen, I think the Queen is a fascinating figure and uh, people do have a huge sense of admiration for her. But in many ways, I feel that that's because she stays above the fray. Like, it's not the Queen's responsibility to take decisions on how to tackle the cost of living crisis or what to do about the war in Ukraine. And almost by staying above the fray, she's able to maintain that presence. And it's almost a, a figurehead role that is really, that provides a real sense of stability. And I think the fact that she's been there for so long provides that stability. But it's almost because she manages to avoid the controversy. Like, it's not that the royal family is without controversy, but actually the Queen herself has largely tried to stay out of that. Whereas Boris and any other politician has to take really difficult decisions. And I'm not going to say that Boris made all the right decisions, but he has to make decisions and that will divide people. Yeah, but the Queen does divide people a little bit too, I think. I'm, I'm trying to work that one out. I probably was an, um, a nominal lo royalist. I'd say loyalist, that would be tricky in my context, R royalist. <laughs> but then I do think it's because of this particular queen, I think it is the stability point. I think it is her faith that she talks really openly about. Mm -hmm. And in my context, you Northern know, Ireland singing God Save the Queen has extra connotations, but I feel reasonably comfortable singing it, but I'm thinking if Charles was king, would I, in the same way? So part of our Being Human project looks at that Divine Image Bearer piece, and you're like, so why is she any more important? Am I singing that song, is it any different than my prayer for anybody else? God save them as an image bearer? Is she particularly special? Do I really believe in some sort of divine right of kings? I'm not sure I want to go there in this, like, around her. So I do think so much for, for me is who she is and how she's articulated her faith. And I would pretty sure I'm going to struggle when Charles takes over. Because I don't have the same relationship with him, not that I know the Queen. And I don't have any sense of, I mean, he's been more open about his interfaith or his way of the defender of the faith's plural. And it's a very different relationship he intends to have with the nation. So I don't think 
I'll have the same empathy and want to celebrate in the same way. I think this is unique to somebody who's guided us for so long, but done it in a particular way with incredible integrity, with incredible commitment, and with a certain amount of kind of service to the nation, even though she's also our queen. It's a funny way she has held that. Yeah, and I don't think from scratch I would struggle to justify a monarchy, but I'm also resistant against attempts to get rid of it, given that we've got it. I think one of the things that gives it health is the fact that she's there and it is a lifelong appointment. Whereas if you look at Boris Johnson, one of the problems he has now is he, there's all this discussion as to will he stay, how long will he stay for, will he be there for the next election, if he's going to go before the next election, will he go in the next six months or the next year. Boris almost has to say, I'm going to fight on forever, I've got loads, I'm going to be here for the next ten years. Because if he doesn't say that, well, he'll be out tomorrow and so I wonder if in one sense you should have kind of term limits for political leaders and then as a kind of figurehead leader having the, the permanence to it does provide that stability. I always, coming back to what you said on, on Charles, I always, churches quite often seem to pray for the Queen I guess because the Bible tells us to pray for our rulers and I always think we need to be praying for Charles, we need to pray that, that he comes to love the Lord in the same way that the Queen obviously does. True. Right, so we've referred to it a couple of times, but just in case you've missed it, on Monday there was a vote from Tory MPs to see whether Boris should remain our Prime Minister or not. He won 70, uh, 59% of the vote, meaning that he's now immune from a Conservative leadership challenge for a year. That's from their stage. Kind of the well, yes, yes, yes. So that's 211 who voted to keep him, 140 eight votes asking him to leave and Boris decided that this was a decisive win even though Theresa May only won by 63% in 2018 when I believe he called her to resign which she did six months later. Yeah if you're a minister in any church trying to get a call to that church or a vote to stay and you got that you'd know well in a lot of churches you wouldn't get the call with that that's not enough it's usually over 65 or 70%. And if you got that while you're in post, you'd be like, my days are numbered. <laughs> so I think if you want to take that analogy, that is the, I mean, that was way higher vote against Boris than I thought. I went for 120, I think was my prediction. I think it was at the upper end of people's expectations. I think there was a kind of, yeah, is it going to be 100, is it going to be 120, is it going to be more than uh, Theresa May uh, received when she had the vote against her. Um, but the problem with Boris Johnson is he's, just not going to go. So, like, I never had any expectation that he would resign unless he lost the vote. And I think that's almost where I've become slightly immune to it. So, I was not working on Monday. I was watching the news channels for several hours while I'm looking after two small children. Um, kind of. But on one end, I can get kind of wrapped up in the intrigue of the politics of it, of what's happening or who's coming out in support of him, who's not, who's staying silent, which ministers have said what. But then on the other hand, I'm like, well, so what? Because he had a vote of no confidence. He technically survived it. 148 of his MPs voted against him, which should be kind of really hard to sustain. And yet he comes out the next morning and carries on. This morning he's got announcements about house building. Next week he's going to have uh, announcements about changing childcare uh, arrangements to make it cheaper for families. He just carries on. Mm-hmm. And that sense of him just carrying on regardless kind of makes me lose confidence, not just in him, but in the whole processes. So 
yeah, it, it's pretty obvious that he is determined to stay regardless. He doesn't it doesn't really feel like he cares that much whether people like him or not. He's he's going to say all the kind of charming things to smooth people over, but he must know on some level how a lot of people perceive him, not everyone, but it doesn't really bother him that much. But Alicia, as Christians, what, how, how do we handle, how do we approach it if we're under leadership that we don't agree with? That, like I said before, God calls us, the Bible calls us to respect those in authorities. He has ordained authority. What, what do we do when we, there will be some listeners to a cross-section who think Boris Johnson is a good leader. There'll be lots who don't. What do we do when he is, he's the authority we're under right now? Great question. I was in Westminster yesterday and I felt a heaviness uh, being there for, for a meeting and I can only imagine those 148 MPs that are somewhat disgruntled that he's still in position and still defiant. And I'm even more concerned for a proportion of those who are Christian MPs within the Conservative Party that want to be led by uh, a leader of integrity and feel that the Prime Minister should be a beaming example of that. So I can only imagine the tension that they're going through uh, today and moving forward with all policy announcements that are, are going forward. I think the part where I relate to this is previously I worked in a secular environment and had a similar situation where I disagreed with the direction, the decision, the integrity, the moral mm -hmm. compass uh, of, of that leader in that moment of time. And it was very hard to come under that leadership, to agree to publicly front the organisation in, in one space, but yet have concerns about the decisions that were made and having difficult conversations privately with that that individual and I think as Christians particularly in the workplace whether secular or Christian organizations we are going to rub against colleagues whether they're line managers whether they're chief executives for whom we disagree with the reason and rationale of their decision but we do need to remain prayerful in how we confront that in a constructive way how we challenge rather than being somewhat of an anarchist in our response and rebellious or I'm going to be late, I'm not going to turn up or I'm going to publicly humiliate that individual in a, a meeting because I disagree with them and, and want them to leave. So there's something on us as Christians to still honour Christ in our disagreement with those in positions of leadership. So and, definitely and politics does behave very differently. Yes. So if Joe, Alicia and myself decided to mount a coup and get rid of Peter and reject his authority what? reject his leadership actually that would cause us problems in our employment now it's understandable and accepted that in all contexts there's going to be some disagreement you're going to have differences of opinion you're going to work that through and then at some point you accept that you're not going to get your own way that is just part and parcel of life and that's part and parcel of politics as well members of political parties agree when they are MPs, they're part of a party, they have the whip for that party, they're not going to agree with everything, but they go along with it because they agree to be part of that party. So I think generally you kind of accept that, that there is a sense of you submit under the authority of the collective because there is a reason for that. Mm -hmm. But then within politics there comes a point of saying, well actually no, we reject that, the disagreements are too strong, mm -hmm. there's got to be a parting of ways. And that happens in other contexts, like if you're in a workplace and the disagreements are too strong, actually 
one way or another, that's going to end. Because it kind of has to, at some point, because it's just going to become untenable. The problem for politics, and with the Conservative Party at the moment, is you've got some people who, for their own electoral prospects, or their own ministerial advancement, are taking positions either for or against by staying in power. And it seems to be more about that than about what's actually good for the country. Well, I think it was Danny Kruger, but one of the Christian MP was talking about Boris and, and, and his flaws, and he said you know, two things he was looking at, his moral conduct and then his vision for the country. And the second of those is where Danny backs him. That's a political decision. Danny Kruger is a Conservative MP. The, the first of those, he thinks he has made some mistakes, but they don't reach the threshold. I might have take a slightly different view in the sense I think Boris has shown a distinct lack of integrity in a number of areas. We... We've said before in this podcast, we did various things during lockdown, but he made the rules and then breached his own rules. He, that's not the only thing he's shown a lack of integrity for. I think more disturbing for me is what he's doing behind the scenes is to undermine the ministerial code and the whole threshold about integrity. Basically, it doesn't matter. His backing of the former Northern Ireland secretary, whose name now escapes me, who was lobbying uh, Owen Patterson and then trying to change the rules around that. I mean, it's just the way, it's constant conduct. My father would have called him a lovable rogue, um, but I think it's, it's beyond doubt that he's a rogue. Whether he's lovable then is up to people to decide. Like, I'm sympathetic somewhat, Boris Johnson does, but that's a political decision on the one part. Is he a person of integrity and moral authority? No, and he's losing that by the day, and I think that is a real problem for a leader. And that's where the contrast for me comes with the Queen. She has shown a very different style of leadership and a very different style of moral authority. And so, I, you know, Romans 13 does say, I was looking it up because you said ordained, that was a really interesting word, it's often translated as institute or put in play, like, and it's a challenge to us as Christians, what do we do with an authority that doesn't appear to have a great deal of integrity, that we may or may not agree with the politics of, but we are to live under, and so challenge I find is, how do I pray for Boris and others in this moment? How do we disagree well on some of the things that we absolutely want to oppose him on? Disagree with what he's doing about the flights to Rwanda, where he potentially goes on some other policy issues that we have coming up for sure. And also acknowledge he's the Prime Minister of the country and whether I like it or not, his MPs have backed him. And, well, the country backed him at one stage, whether they would now, who knows. So it's a real challenge to work with leaders who are showing a distinct lack of integrity. And I think my overall fear is the bar gets lowered. Yeah. For everybody, for our so we've said that like for our kids and friends to be looking on, but it's fine for him to do it. So why can't I do it? And so just so integrity's not even in play. And I think this happened when we said, "Oh, private lives are private," and so people, MPs and political leaders, could have affairs because that wasn't our business. And I've never agreed with that. I've always thought that was a bad play because if you can lie to your spouse or lie to others, then you can lie in the dispatch box. But we allowed that privatisation as a culture at large. And now we're finding it really hard to say, is there any boundary left that you can cross in terms of integrity that would cause us an issue? And the answer is now logically no. Whereas we'd say, absolutely, every one of those was a problem and remains so. So I think we need to hold our leaders to account. And I think this is all great ways that we can engage in the conversation. So part of the point of cross-section is we want to equip Christians listening on how they can find that cross-section between oh, faith, very good, Joe. Very thank good. you, thank you, I'm well trained, faith, news and culture. But also on the ground, I think there's a real challenge, you know, right now the average UK resident doesn't have power over whether Boris is in or out. And I think we have an opportunity as Christians to be distinctive to our friends and family who maybe don't know Jesus in remaining obedient to, to the, the law of the land, 
you know, if we, it, it, again, it's a bit of an easier thing to, to see in practice when it comes to things like COVID restrictions, which we don't have currently, but even, even things like uh, speed limits, you know, if we're distinctive in the way that we obey, obey the governing authorities, we obey the law of the land, and people could be like, well, why do you bother doing that when there's such a lack of... People could argue that there's not a lot to respect there, but but we have a different motivation, right? A different message by saying, well, actually, I do this out of obedience to Jesus, who is our supreme, completely trustworthy leader. I know we could talk about this all day, so I'm going to move this on. Cineworld this week has cancelled the Lady of Heaven film screening because of protests. That's the headline. Danny, Peter, do you want to fill us in with the details? So this is a film um, about the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad. And actually, interestingly, this is not primarily being uh, protested against because of how the Prophet Muhammad is depicted, because that is commonly a criticism. But instead, it's about how a Shia Muslim filmmaker has portrayed uh, prominent revered figures in early Sunni Islam as um, an implying comparisons between these figures and their actions and the Islamic State group in Iraq. So there is significant disagreement between groups within Islam about how these figures are depicted and how it relates to terrorist and military organisations. But what you've seen is you've seen protests outside cinema. Cine World said that they were cancelling the protests because of fears for their staff and customers. Um, other cinemas are still showing the film, and the the director said yesterday that, uh, well, it's a lot of people know about this film who had never heard about it before. So I don't think he's totally upset. Yeah, I am. Um, Peter, you had some concerns about the fact that they cancelled the film showing. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a real mixed bag, I think. So one part of me says, well, hold on. I mean, somebody wrote this, basically, it says blasphemy laws by the back door, because although we don't have laws on blasphemy in GB. What are blasphemy laws? Blasphemy laws are that you cannot take the, the Lord's name in vain or use it in a way that's considered inappropriate. And so there were laws on the statute book in GB. Though I'm saying that because there are still laws on the statute book in Northern Ireland. And I'm not a fan of the state imposing those kind of blasphemy laws, but what one commentator was saying is that's what's de facto happening here. Or you might as well have them because what's happening is the mob, as the commentator wanted to put it, have got this film cancelled. So why don't we at least regulate and be clear what is or isn't blasphemy rather than leaving it up to a very subjective view of people. But on the other side, this is ultimately a private cinema saying, well, either concern for their workers or you know, they're not going to get the business because the protesters outside. I'm broadly in favour of the freedom to protest. I'm broadly in favour of a private company making its own decisions. Mm-hmm. What concerns me here is where we're into the grey areas of religion and kind of almost like a blasphemy law by default in this moment. Is this the one area you can't speak into? Because I think it is important people can protest and speak out against things they don't like. Hear, hear. But <laughs> I think it's also important that we accept that people will say and do things that we find offensive and insulting. So you kind of have to hold those two things together, that people have the freedom to say things we really don't like, but actually we and other people should have the freedom to protest. And then it's when people then make decisions as a result of that, that's when you kind of get into the cancel culture. They're not being forced to cancel it. Sydney World weren't forced to suspend it, but they decided to as a result of these actions. 
Do you think do you think Christians should make more of a fuss when uh, a slightly different issue? But do you think Christians should make more of a fuss when we're depicted poorly in TV films? I'm actually more bothered about how when it's kind of reliant on stereotypical tropes rather than when it's kind of offensively criticised. I think when it kind of reinforces people's opinions of, oh, that's what Christians are like, or that's mm-hmm. what they're doing. I, I might not want people to be critical or abusive or offensive about Jesus or God, but if people are going to do that, that's, they're going to do that. Yeah, because typically you don't hear many of these stories, at least not in the UK, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, around... Christian Christian representation so take the latest series of Killing Eve I actually only watched the first two episodes might dip back into it but but the first two episodes you have the main character dressing up as a kind of transvestite version of Jesus I just didn't enjoy watching it it's a pretty horrendous representation but you don't hear much of people making a fuss about that why why do you think Christians typically make less of a fuss why do you think yeah why isn't it such a big deal I would say through fear Interesting. To, to come across and that be was not what I expected as, um, passionate as a Muslim group in reaction to this film or even take the Ricky Gervais comedy on Netflix and seeing parts of the trans activist community coming out in uproar in less than 24 hours. I think Christians would rather self-centre and hold, maybe question, should I be offensive? Do I have a right to be? Should I defend? They'd rather self-censor rather than naturally rally and have that activist spirit that is ready to go either online en masse because in both instances it was on mass numerically that both were able to respond, whereas we tend to get the individual rogue Christian that would probably say this isn't good enough, rather than they'd be backed by a hundred or a thousand behind them. It's, it's really interesting that you say that because I thought you were going to say, uh, like, kind of John 15 stuff, Jesus says the world's going to hate you. So when we see stuff like this, we think, well, that's just part and parcel. And, and my instinct was that it comes from a kind of um, a sense of security in that uh, we, we expect the world to be against the Christian view and we know that, that Jesus is victorious nonetheless, that the gospel message will be the aroma of death to some, it will be news of, of life to others. Peter, what do you think? You know, I thought a couple of things came to mind was... The, I mean, the Prophet Muhammad in particular is considered very differently within um, Islam. So there are very particular reasons why they'll often protest, well, it's not quite what this film's about. So there is a difference in their understanding of what it is to represent him than, than there are for Christians. I do think some of it, for me, is history rather than fear. We were having an interesting conversation last night with Mary Whitehouse, because there was a BBC programme. So she was a campaigner in the yeah. 70s, maybe? against like sexual pro- proliferation on TV and was a Christian lady who came and said this stuff's all bad and actually the BBC, I haven't seen the programme but I was talking to two people who had who said they were actually reasonably favourable to her in the, saying actually she was probably right in some of the stuff she was f- highlighting 
and particularly kind of sexualization of children mm. and how freely available happen. pornography was available and she was pointing out that wasn't good for the health of the culture at large maybe how she did it wasn't the best but I think it's a fear to be stereotyped like that oh you're a prude like those people of old and we don't want that and I think there's a fine sense of actually we need to get our own house in order so the blasphemy laws if you like that idea, we're largely directed at it's the Christian community or the own, your own religious community. Do not take your God's name in vain. And we have misused God's name, I think, in various ways. I'm much less concerned, but still concerned, about the kind of flippant, oh my God, type thing. It's the people who misuse it and t- seek to use Jesus' name to, to force through an agenda that's unhealthy, be that abuse in context, be that just mispreaching the word and knowing they're doing so. So we need to get our own house in order. I can't expect the culture to understand who Jesus is, the most life-transforming, radical, risen from the dead. They get bits of that, we know that from the surveys, but they don't understand. So I can't be overly surprised that my friends and culture are sometimes going to misuse it. I hope those who know me and in general don't kind of just flippantly do that in front mm-hmm. of me, but at large. And actually it's so often then a pivot point. Danny's probably done more media than anybody else about moments when commercial organizations do that. The Mulberry handbag at Christmas, I seem to remember very famously, that Greg sausage roll that got sent you global, Danny. <laughs> but actually it gave us a moment. So, okay, you're looking. Joe's going, what is this story? Give some context. This, as I recall, Danny Craig, was a Christmas piece by Greg's with a manger with a sausage roll. Yeah. And oh, I remember seeing that. I yes. got a phone call. It was a quiet day. I gave a quote to some local newspaper that then got picked up by the BBC and then the Guardian, LBC, New York Times. It all went a bit crazy. Then it went global. And I think that the quote that I remember was, I'm not that offended by it. And I think sometimes there is just a British sense of just shrugging it off a bit. Like, come on, it's not that bad. I can get over it. But if we're savvy, it's the flip moment Mm. where we can say... That's really interesting, but what's going on there? What you've done is commercialise that moment, or it's particularly offensive to the Jews, what you've done with the sausage roll, or Mulberry, what you've tried to do is put the consumerism at the heart of Christmas rather than Christ, and gives us a moment to speak into that and say, it is about a gift, but it's not the gift you put in. And actually, the OBC interview was one of those perfect moments that you always want to come, and I wasn't wholly prepared for when I said, I don't want people to be thinking about a sausage roll at Christmas. And the presenter came back and said, well, what do you want people to be thinking about at Christmas? Nice. I'm like, right, I've got 30 seconds to say something. <laughs> and I hope I did it justice. I think that's so often what we're about, to go back to your cross-section, we're trying to live at the intersection and say, where in the stories is the, is the pivot moment? We're living at the hinge. So Mark Sayers, who's a great cultural commentator, says this, this overall moment is a hinge moment that we're living in. We've come out of pandemic into something else. But actually, there's just these hinge moments um, in conversation all the time, uh, the, the, the kind of Janus moments right on the door where it flips between. So where we have to create those. What in the story do I get the moment to flip it? I mean, the life of Brian is probably the most famous example of a kind of taking the mic out of the Christian story. But actually, if you look at it, Danny, help me here because I'm trying to remember what the context. <laughs> there is a kind of really there is a flip where it's a bit of a critique of Christianity, yes, but actually it's a great moment to bridge build out of it. Oh, absolutely, and, and there are all sorts of comedy moments was a few years ago I remember talking about the life of Brian and would evangelicals take the same approach now that they did at the time Uh, because at that point Christians did mount a big campaign against it I think 
So I think it is finding the avenues to talk about things, to register where you might not be comfortable about it, finding opportunities to speak positively. But there is also a pragmatic approach that says if we want to be able to speak in a culture that doesn't always like what we say, mm. we have to accept that other people are going to say things that we don't mm. uh, like. And I think that's where I come to, is that actually in a society where we want to promote uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion and belief, you have to accept that people are going to say things you don't like. Yeah, I, I think... Like with lots of these things, it's about balance. So I think you're completely right that sometimes we need to not be so afraid and call out when something is just horribly offensive. And I think sometimes, yeah, they are, they are moments where it's worth taking the gracious line, the patient line, and use it as a chance to speak about Jesus. A few years ago, I was watching a film with a friend and her family. It's called, I think it was called The End of the World. It was on these Seth Rogen films. Horribly offensive. It was the apocalypse and oh, it, it almost made me feel physically ill. It was just, it was awful. But I stayed and watched to the end of the film and actually we had quite a difficult but really great conversation about how seriously God takes sin what the end of the world might look like, the hope when Jesus returns. So as with all these things, I think uh, really the answer is to pray for wisdom, pray for wisdom and opportunities, ask that God would give us a humble and gracious and gentle words to use when those opportunities come. Thank you so much for listening. As always, thank you to Chris Ringland, who does all of our post-production work, deals with our nonsense. This has been Cross Section and we will see you next week. Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.